Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to look at what can be done to treat hypermobility and how to improve our lives given our circumstances. Today, our guest is Kate Skinner, also known as Hypermobility Solution on Instagram. Kate has a doctorate in physical therapy, and she currently practices as a physical therapist who specializes in the treatment of chronic pain and hypermobility. She has a number of online resources available, like her Hypermobility 101 book and programs designed to address hypermobility and issues like chronic neck pain. Kate also offers individual coaching sessions and operates a physical therapy practice in Montana. We'll include a link to her website and to her Instagram page in the episode notes. Kate, welcome, and hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm excited that there's a podcast that talks about hypermobility and the issues. I think that's wonderful. Thanks. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. Um, You have such a great perspective on your um, social media posts and your website, so really excited to get into some of the details of your practice, but let's start with the basics. How did the features of your hypermobility first manifest themselves, and what was your path to diagnosis like? Well, I consider my story to be pretty much like most of my clients and the people I've talked to. Um, I started having more issues um, when I was about 14, 15, and my first major issue was neck pain. And I got neck pain after shoveling some snow, nothing big, nothing straining, nothing really injury. And then it just never went away. And so my neck pain became shoulder pain. And, you know, later on I developed back pain. And even though I went to lots of providers, massage therapists, chiropractors, acupuncture, like it just never really got better. And so Uh, so many of my things later on, once I figured out hypermobility, I found out were really common and typical for that kind of an issue. Definitely. And that story really speaks to me. That seems like a very similar progression of, I mean, I, of what I experienced, I did have um, a bit of a a trauma to my neck, but it's interesting how that pattern often that the neck is a really a a starting point for a lot of um, the dysfunction. Um, How long did you have to go between when you started having those symptoms and when your um, hypermobility diagnosis was finally made? Um, It was right around like 12 years, which, you know, it seems like a long time, but I've known people who have struggled for longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, my journey to diagnosis was kind of in some ways a fluke. I'd given up trying. Um, I was, as a, a college student, I was going through Costco bottles of ibuprofen, like it was candy. And, you know, I look back on it now and, and it seems kind of crazy to me, but in the moment, like that was, that was just normal. That was how I got through, got through my day. And um, I was getting by with massage was about the only thing I'd found that was actually helpful. And I went all the way through PT school and found out I had more hypermobility, um, but still didn't necessarily understand that as a, as a thing. Hypermobility wasn't something we really learned about in school. I was just special. I was the demo. I was Gumby. I could do any of the things. 
Um, and so it was kind of in some ways highlighted, like it was it was very cool. Um, but I didn't connect it at that point in time to my issues or my pain. It wasn't until um, I was connected with a specialist out of Seattle um, doing chronic pain that um, we went through all the things and diagnosed me with hypermobility spectrum disorder um, or benign hypermobility spectrum disorder, which um, has been more reclassified now as hypermobile EDS. But um, it wasn't until then that I understood that it was anything other than being really flexible. Wow. That, that's, it's amazing that, um, you know, you made it through PT school without um, having that, you know, revelation be there. And I think that really speaks to how little, you know, in just a lot of different areas of medicine, the awareness has, you know, not kind of made it to the practitioners. And so, um, you know, but I'm, I'm so glad you found it. And clearly it's, you know, kind of opened a lot of doors to you understanding the condition better and, and learning ways to deal with it. So um, that's, that's great. Um, you mentioned the ibuprofen and massages, but um, what other types of treatments have you tried and what has worked for you and are, are the things that are, have not worked for you? Um, I think as I went through like my own journey, like I tried most anything I could find and um, I did PT, which didn't really work for me when I went through it. Um, chiropractic, acupuncture, um, and uh, really didn't find much for results. I um, did medications and that didn't really change things. What made the biggest difference for me um, in my process was once I understood the hypermobility pieces, once I understood that hypermobility doesn't follow the same rules as everything else, or not everything else, as health and wellness is generally taught. Um, hypermobility tends to be backward or opposite from um, what those health and wellness uh, ideas are, are given as. And so for me, I kept trying to stretch everything. Everything was so tight and it was spasmed and it was painful. And so everything I found kept telling me to stretch it out, to roll it, to um, do what I needed to do to loosen it. And what I found is with hypermobility, you actually have to go the other way. It's spasming because it's too long and it's too weak. And the more you try and stretch it out, the worse it gets. And so if you shorten it rather than, than stretching it, and if you get it stronger and you take the load off and help support it, things get um, much, much better. And so that was kind of a, one of the game changers for me is kind of starting to understand and see that. And the other big thing that um, I found that made a huge difference was when I understood this kind of idea of giving 100% or you hear give 110%, that that actually can work against you. Um, being kind of a type A high achieving person, and I find there's a lot of um, hypermobile high achieving people out there, mm -hmm. you know, we can kind of be our worst enemies by um, working so hard at something that we kind of miss what we're trying to do. And if you actually come back and work at about a 70% level, or what I tell my patients is give me a solid C effort. 
I want you to be able to check in. I want you to know what you're doing. I want you to pay attention, but don't try so hard. You don't over recruit everything. You don't, um, you don't have more muscles or joints or force than what you really need. And you get a lot better results from that. And so those were key for me in terms of turning that corner and starting to understand that one, I've been doing so many things wrong that through a lot of effort and money on my part, I've been not making myself better and potentially making myself worse. And if I can just change direction with that, um, things really started to improve and open up. Those are some great insights. And I, I've noticed, you know, very similar things that, you know, we often are told the no pain, no gain and and really to push through. And when you couple that, like you say, with the fact that many of us are the type A personalities and, you know, chicken or egg, I'm not sure which comes first. I've heard, you know, somewhere, I think that the amygdala in people with this condition tends to be a bit bigger. Um, so, you know, do we have more of the fight or flight? Are we more easily triggered or does the loose connective tissue, um, you know, send faulty signals that, you know, make the brain kind of searching for answers to uncertainty? Um, not really sure about all that, but I completely, um, agree, you know, when I start, when I stopped trying to push myself to those, you know, stronger levels and, and kind of just tried to consistently do, you know, what I could and then check in, um, and try to be cognizant of things like delayed onset muscle soreness, which, you know, can be a big issue. Um, it's, it's a completely different perspective, but, but so helpful. And I, again, just a great reminder of why it's key to get awareness out there. So, you know, I wish I'd learned these things when I was a teenager instead of, um, you know, much later in life. Um, because, yeah, a lot of the messages that we get um, from the culture and around exercise and, and just health and wellness in general um, do seem really kind of counterintuitive for us. And, and, and like you said, you know, um, the idea of that you don't want to stretch too far, you know, some, some practices that a lot of hypermobile people get into like yoga. Um, you know, I did that for a while and I would love going to end range because it feels good to go to end range. Right. It's like our, um, our ligaments like to, or or I don't know if our brain likes it or, um, but I've heard that we like to go to our end range, but it's one thing to go to the end range. It's another thing to hang out there. And, um, you know, it, it's especially difficult when you may not feel the effect of that for a day or two after. So it really getting in touch with your body. And I, I love that you're giving us all permission to be C students when it comes to our health and that that's actually a, a path to, for many patients at least, probably a more stable um, you know, type of recovery. Certainly there's probably some people out there who are thinking, no, I'm, I'm 110 percenter. Um, that's, you know, it's great. I definitely used to think of myself that way, but, um, I like permission to be a C student. So, (laughs) well, there's another thing I like to explain to people. Um, because usually the first time I start working with somebody, we start talking about pretzel positions because when people are hypermobile, they really like those pretzel type twisted positions. Mm -hmm. And, Part of the reason we like it, and I've had people tell me it's the only position that they're comfortable and it's the only way that they can feel better, is that when you take your um, muscles and ligaments to that end range, you initiate a stretch response that can override the pain response, which Mm -hmm. is great. It's kind of like putting ice on something. You can override that pain response and you can temporarily feel better. 
problem is, is you can only stretch so far before it becomes really pathologic. So, you know, you're much better off to understand that, you know, while that does feel better, there's a mirage component to it where, like, it doesn't actually work for you. And then have to come back to finding that center and finding that that symmetry and that middle that is so helpful for people. But understanding, like, why things, you know, work or why you get that feedback I find is really important to being able to change and understand your behavior. Because if all you know is something feels better, then it's hard to to change or leave that behind um, until you understand the reasoning why that's, why you're always stretching and popping your joints and um, kind of doing that automatically. Definitely. And I, that's, I love the way you put it, that it's a mirage and I, that speaks to me greatly because um, it's something that I struggle with even subconsciously. Uh, you know, I've been cracking my neck for so long because it gets so tight and stretching it out. And I've had people say, Oh, don't do that. And I, I hadn't even noticed that I was doing it because it's so just kind of built in, like you're looking for ways to feel better. And, you know, you know, you can get that easy relief by doing that stretch or that crack, but you know, it's probably making things, um, you know, in, in my instance, at least, um, worse. And, and it reminds me of the comment that you made a moment earlier about using the, the giant Costco size ibuprofen bottles. Um, that really spoke to me. I remember using Excedrin just all the time for the headaches and the joint pain and thinking, oh, well, it works. So this is good. And not really, um, you know, thinking, well, what's the trade-off here? And am I just, you know, kind of turning down the pain signal, but I'm actually doing more damage as a result of that. And so I just having all this knowledge is important so people can make choices from a place of full or more full, fuller context um, instead of the kind of just general all size fits all um, Mm -hmm. approach that we get. Well, and to let you know where like I'm at now with my neck pain, you know, um, a lot of times I would tell you, I don't have neck pain anymore. Now, I still have bad days, but I rarely use medication. And the biggest difference for me is understanding where my pain was coming from. And my biggest thing is um, I spend, I do a lot of work on a laptop and laptops are horribly mechanical um, posture issues for people who are hypermobile. Mm-hmm. Now, I know this. I have a standing desk. I have um, an electric standing desk. I have a lap desk. I can do all the things. I have all the, the tools I need. I know where I need to be. I still get lazy. I will work in bed on my laptop, which is horrible. Um, or I will sleep on my stomach, which is hard on, on necks. And the biggest difference is I can now connect with I've been spending too much time on my laptop. I need to make a change. And instead of why is this happening? And now I've got to power through my day. You know, now I can make the choice and I may still choose to sleep on my stomach because that's how I feel like I need to sleep. But then when I wake up with a headache, then it changes the context and the severity is not nearly so great because I know if I get too bad, I know what I need to do to manage it. And then when you have that choice, it's yours to make. And that makes such a huge difference than if you're never sure what it's going to be day to day. 
That is such a great point to make. And I think it's, it's just such an empowering point to, to, you know, to really, you know, and thanks for sharing your own, you know, personal story with the neck pain, because I think that's, um, you know, very, very interesting because, um, it is so easy to just, you know, try to push through things and being able to kind of shift our perspective and listen to our body, get in touch with it and, you know, realize, okay, you know, I've, I've overdone it a little bit in some way. Um, what's going on? What can I do to feel better? Um, you know, do I need to strategically rest or strategically move? Um, and having more knowledge about what the mechanism uh, of what's going on, um, uh, you know, allows us to be in a position to make those choices. And I think, you know, informed consent to me is just such a, a big, important issue. And, um, you know, knowledge really is power and I've seen it at work in this community and it's, it's, it changes, you know, every little insight I get from, you know, interviewing people like, you know, the thing about sleeping on your stomach, that makes so much sense. And, um, I, I really try not to, but you're right. Sometimes, sometimes it's like the only position that seems to work. Um, but when you get one of those, you know, really terrible headaches or terrible, you know, trapezius spasm pain, being able to take a step back. And, you know, like I've read about some kind of pain management techniques, like some people suggest, like focus on the space between your finger and your thumb. I think that was in the book, Dissolving Pain, if I remember, but just kind of focusing on different parts of your body to, you know, redirect your attention that that can just calm you down a little bit, not to try to talk yourself out of your pain or that it's not real or anything like that, but just being able to put things in context so your brain doesn't feel that need to just spin and panic. And, you know, it's, it, it seems like those injuries and pains always come up at the worst times, you know, like, it's like, why is this happening now? But um, by being able to see, okay, yep, you got a pain, you know, need to take it a little easy or go for a massage or, um, you know, whatever it may be that helps, you know, hopefully even just being able to kind of think about that a little bit and think, well, this will probably feel better in a few days. If it doesn't, you know, then I'll hopefully there's a specialist that you can seek out or, you know, go to kind of another level of treatment. But yeah, context is just so key. So great point. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your personal physical therapy practice, as in the services that you provide and what conditions you have the most expertise in working with? Sure. Um, my uh, practice is a, an outpatient physical therapy clinic, and I specialize in chronic pain and complex conditions. And so the way I like to explain it to people is what I do really well is all the things that don't fit in the box. When you've already kind of gone there and, and done things and it didn't work, um, that tends to be my world. And that's what, what I do really well. So I have a very um, complex background in terms of different types of techniques, a lot of hands-on techniques, and I am really good at combining them together. So I will use multiple different types of approaches to address a problem and being able to kind of layer them uh, together to get the best outcome. I also really focus a lot on um, function and educational strategies where I try and teach people how to better take care of themselves. So that way um, you don't, you are empowered and can uh, improve your own health rather than 
being reliant on somebody to either take care of you or a treatment technique to manage your, your symptoms long term. And so there's a lot that we do that has um, education and understanding on how those all work together. Um, I see patients from um, a lot of different, from several different states on a regular basis. And so um, there's a lot that I've found in terms of um, uh, education that really is invaluable for um, learning how to work with other professionals and medical professionals and be able to advocate for the care you need and not necessarily feel like you're stuck with what you get. That is music to my ears. I feel like I need to just print out that quote and put it up. That's that approach is just seems so fitting for people with hypermobility conditions. And that's something I've really noticed from your, um, you know, your online presence is how, how detail oriented you really are. And I think that's so necessary because, you know, what I've observed in the past uh, about six years, I guess, seven years that I've been, um, reading about hypermobility and speaking to people with these conditions. Um, one of the main things that strikes me over and over again is, you know, we, we, we have so much in common. There's kind of a paradox. We, we all have, you know, similarities to our stories. Um, but there really is such a range of um, physical levels of functioning, um, you know, levels of sleep, you know, comorbidities. There's so much going on. And it really is the full spectrum of people from, you know, people at sort of the um, most physically functional roles in our society, entertainers, athletes, you know, to people that are, you know, bedridden or, um, you know, very, very severely disabled. And then everyone in between. And for some patients, you know, their levels of functioning changes day to day, you know, maybe even hour to hour for some people. And so I think an approach like yours that really looks at the whole person and then you can kind of take your toolbox of different approaches and figure out, okay, what's going to fit with this person as an individual given their wants, needs, goals. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a fantastic approach. That seems to be um, exactly what we need. So kudos to you for <laughs> developing that. I'm and I'm sure, you know, having experienced these things yourself, um, you know, has probably been an opportunity for you to think about, you know, what kinds of um, approaches work for you and, you know, and, and thinking about how, how people vary. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And I think a lot of patients get in this cycle where, you know, we've seen physical therapists who are not knowledgeable about the condition and maybe push us too hard or cause us more pain or have us ignore our pain. And when you have that experience over and over and over again of people not understanding and kind of trying to put you into this one size fits all bucket that works for a football player, you know, a, a young football player and, uh, um, you know, hobby weekend skier, you know, people of all different um, backgrounds, but might be counterintuitive for hypermobility. Um, yeah, it just, it seems like a really phenomenal approach. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the role of pain science in the physical therapy community. Um, there's a bit of, this is a bit of a controversial issue in the patient community um, because many patients feel offended um, when a physical therapist, especially one who's not knowledgeable about EDS and hypermobility conditions, 
wants to talk about how pain is in the brain. Um, you know, people have experienced the flashcards or the videos, um, and patients, uh, you know, can, and I, myself included, see this as a sign that, oh, the therapist thinks this is all in your head. Um, but I've also read a lot about pain science and I find, uh, you know, a lot of really interesting material in it. Um, and, but yet there's something sort of strange in the way it's been presented, you know, to me. And, and I know others have had this experience. Do you have thoughts on the role of pain science in a physical therapy practice? Yes, I love talking about pain science and I use pain science a lot in my practice. And the science behind um, pain science is really good, although I don't always agree with how it is and, and can be presented in the clinic. Now, currently, it's exploded in physical therapy because we're really the best providers who have the most time and understand our patients the best. So we're in the best position to be able to explain it to our clients. But that doesn't mean it's always done well. And I have had quite a few clients who have interpreted it or have been told it before. And all they walk away with is it's in my head. And if I just stop thinking about it, that I'll be fine. And that's really not what pain science is. Um, pain science is understanding that everything has a context. And one of the biggest triggers for your brain is uncertainty. And so if you have a surgery and you don't follow the normal timeline, if you aren't better when they say you should be better, that all breeds uncertainty and that breeds um, this level of awareness where your nervous system starts to try and gather more information. Why am I not better? Why is this still bothering me? What do I need to do differently? And then that awareness kind of breeds more sensitivity. And so when you start to understand how the processes work, then it helps you to know um, with your hypermobility, one, what are actual reasonable expectations, but then two, why things are happening. And that helps to control that nervous system process and um, improve your pain management. Now, from a, a, a brain perspective, there is no way that you can just stop thinking about it or you can change that thought process. You can understand it and you can see how it relates to you, but it's not the same as, you know, just don't think about your pain and you'll be fine. If I told you, um, whatever you do, don't think about your right foot. The first place your brain goes is your right foot. Like that's a, that's a reflex. That's a reaction. That's mm -hmm. wired. And so, you know, the more you understand that um, that that is a piece of it, then the better you can understand your your pain and your process going forward. Absolutely, and I think that's such an important way to put this all in context. And you've kind of resolved, you know, my own um, sort of ambiguous feelings on this because I completely agree. Learning about um, pain science, and I guess there's I guess there's some out there that's more accurate and, and some that seems, you know, a little bit missing context, I guess, maybe I'll say, but, um, you know, I think that's such a, it's a great way of taking that science, but realizing that teaching about it, um, really should be in the context of, you know, a trusting relationship and 
in the way that speaks to the person and is a part of a larger context of treating them and having them be as informed and empowered about their condition as possible. So I think that's a, it's a really great perspective on a, um, on a topic that can be controversial and unfortunately um, can be a source of alienation between hypermobile patients and um, their practitioners. And so anything we can do to kind of break down those barriers to people getting the care that they need and deserve, I think is really, really helpful. Oh, absolutely. All comes back to education and understanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then, then you can have informed consent and then that's just a much more empowered place to be than, you know, a lot of us find ourselves, you know, being told, you know, you have to try physical therapy for this long. Okay. It's not working out. Now let's go to surgery or that kind of very, you know, prescriptive approach. And, um, you know, finding people that are knowledgeable about this condition and working with them um, can be so helpful. And that's why it's just critically important, you know, to get the word out there so that, you know, people are not as geographically limited and it's the, the coverage isn't as kind of sparse and uneven as it as it is now. Um, I noticed on your website, you discuss biomechanical ankle platform systems or BAPs. Um, could you explain a little bit about what these devices do and what patients or conditions could potentially benefit from their use? Um, I saw a trial from uh, 2017 in the Journal of Sport Rehabilitation that indicated a benefit in chronic ankle sprains or CAI um, that was seen in high school students. Um, is that consistent with your experience? And I guess, how do you see the role of that device for hypermobile patients? You know, I think that they are a great tool. Um, BAPS boards are really just a platform and then they have like a round knob. They come in some different shapes. Um, but one of the things I like best about them is you can get them where they're um, fairly reasonably priced and they're also fairly small and portable. So I'm always looking for things that are easy to integrate, um, good tools that can be helpful, that you don't have to have a whole gym or an unlimited bank account to take advantage of. And so when we're looking at ankle sprains, they do really help with working on proprioception, control, balance. One of the things I love about them best for hypermobile populations is that um, they really help you to learn how to stabilize with your core, to use your core and your hips, and then be able to move from your ankle. So often um, ankle sprains are super common with hypermobile people. And as you have more ankle sprains and more ligament damage, one of the things we start to see is that you get this compensation pattern where your hip starts trying to work as an ankle. So you get more um, rotation from your hip and um, this abnormal just stabilization pattern. And so you really have to go back and learn how to control your body well. And doing that is having stable core, having stable hips, being able to engage and know where your ankle is in, in space. And so the BAPS board really kind of helps you figure out how do I move my ankle? How do I move my ankle with the muscles of my lower leg rather than trying to use my hip? And even though that sounds silly, like why would you use your hip for an ankle? Um, people do it all the time. And um, hypermobile people are master compensators. They can do things backwards, sideways, using completely unrelated body parts. And 
So understanding that helps you to tune back in and figure out and connect with your body on what you're actually supposed to use. So the research with them is great um, for recovery from ankle sprains and working on that stability and trying to prevent um, an, another ankle sprain or another injury. But I definitely like them as a wider range tool. And there's other things you can use in place of those like a BOSU or different balance pads, but they're just a nice portable option for working with that. That's so interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. Like you said, it's initially counterintuitive. I was even thinking like, how would I use my hip for my ankle? But the way you described it, I'm, I'm almost certain that that has to be something um, that I've been doing because I've had so much laxity and tears and injuries with my hip. And I wonder, I mean, do you think getting that stability from like the ground, literally the ground up from the ankle, that that kind of teaches upward? Or do you think more of the benefit comes from that core stabilization that it, it forces you to sort of get control of the, the hips in the more central part and then figuring that out like helps from a, a middle down approach? Or maybe is it both, I guess? You know, I think there's a lot of both. I always like to start from the core and then work down. But I think one of the big pieces is understanding like each part has its own job. And if there's another part that's taken over that job, you know, starting to like for the hip ankle analogy, you know, if we make the ankle actually have to operate as an ankle, that takes the pressure off the hip and then the hip can heal or the hip can focus on being a hip. And so often we have these coordinating patterns where, you know, um, a knee is working as a, as a back or your back, backs like to work for everything. You know, back pain super common, your back does everything for you. And so once you get rid of the things that it doesn't need to do or isn't supposed to do in the first place, then the pain with those areas gets so much better. That makes a lot of sense. And I've heard about that too, the over recruitment of too many muscle groups. And it's interesting. Um, I think you use the phrase master compensators. And I think that's so tr true in my own experience. And I've um, seen it in others that we can develop some really interesting movement patterns. Um, and, you know, like I've had people say, oh, you, you walk funny in this way, or why do you do this? And it's just, it's hard to even begin to answer because it's, it's just instinct, intuitive. You know, it's like, how or why do I do anything? I don't know. And sort of not seeing it um, externally. Um, it's, 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 it feels normal to me. You know, it's how I walk. It's, and, but, um, and I think that can be part of the challenge that some of these things seem so basic that it's like, oh, how can I be not standing correctly? Or how am I using my hip as my ankle? But um, in my experience, learning about these things has been really the key to, um, you know, that first step of understanding and then, okay, you know, what, what can we do about this? Um, so very interesting. So switching gears a little bit, um, you also have a very active social media presence. And I think you have a, a really unique perspective that I find um, very interesting and very refreshing. Um, what has been your experience in raising awareness on social media and what do you wish for the future when it comes to awareness about hypermobility conditions? Well, I find a lot of people now go to social media for information, whether it's groups, whether it's to research things, whether it's to research providers. 
And so um, that is kind of where I've gone to try and connect with with people and individuals. And part of um, my uh, drive through all of this is um, to provide education and to let people know that there's another option and that they can, you know, find hope out there that, yes, um, you can be better than where you are now. And so much when I um, kind of started down this social media rabbit hole, um, I, I was really disheartened. In a lot of ways, I started um, trying to turn people away from social media um, in terms of my clients because there was so much negativity and there was so much um, uh, doom and gloom. And even trying to offer kind of some practical ideas was met with um, a, a lot of resistance. And so we've tried to kind of go another way and focus um, more specifically just on on the mechanical hypermobility piece, but also on some practical solutions, on some real things, easy things, um, things that you can start to move forward with and gain traction, and also provide hope that you know things can get better. And I've seen things get better, and I've seen people's lives change. And so um, there are options out there for everyone if we can help connect you and give you some education, some information, hopefully we can help make your path a little bit easier than like the one I've been down and, and the one that I've um, seen a lot of other people go through. Absolutely. And I do really appreciate your content for that reason, because, um, you know, I, I do like to look for information and, and practical solutions and, um, it's, it, it's really tough because, you know, so much of this community is suffering so much and, um, you know, so many people live in communities where their medical providers don't know about these conditions and then their family members don't know. And, you know, I think hopefully I, I'm starting to feel that that tide is turning and I feel, you know, hopefully as more awareness and information gets out there it won't be as much of a dynamic of individual patients having to be in the position of educating their providers, their employers, their family, friends about these things. <laughs> and it's just it's something that becomes more understood and accepted. And I think if there was better accessibility in society for, um, you know, people with orthopedic injuries, hypermobile conditions, that would be a, a net benefit to a large portion of society because, you know, I've had people come to me with, you know, an injury, a sprained ankle or a surgery, and they say, wow, it's really hard to, um, you know, find accessible parking or, you know, get accommodation for this or that. And it, they have sort of a new appreciation for my experience. And so I've become sort of a collector of those stories in some ways. And it's like, yeah, like having even just the basic thing of, you know, benches in parks so that when you, when you do get too fatigued to just be able to, um, you know, take a moment and rest and kind of let the blood flow restore itself. Um, it can make a huge difference between, um, suffering and, and, and not. And so, you know, it, it can be so hard for us to even think about proactive solutions when we're in that state of suffering. And so, but, but that's why, you know, I, I like that you've, um, you know, sort of stayed to, you know, how can I give, you know, specific mechanical and useful advice? And 
Um, you know, like you mentioned about the the BAPs being very, um, you know, re- relatively inexpensive, easy to come by. And I, I've looked at the programs on your website and I see, you know, they're very reasonably priced for, you know, a ton of content and information. Um, and that's so, that's so helpful because a, a lot of, you know, practitioners are really, really expensive or, you know, just cost prohibitive for a lot of the population. And so, um, yeah, I really appreciate you um, providing such um, practical and mechanical advice. I think it's, it's, it's been a really uh, important voice for me. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, and I do agree. I think the tide is turning in terms of individuals and with communities kind of coming together to be more supportive. Um, I am not seeing the medical side changing as much yet, but that's also something that tends to be a little bit slower change. And so, you know, it's part of my goal to help work on educating providers as well and the medical community in terms of um, resources and options. And and so that's something that I am um, currently working on. But, you know, definitely that the educational piece and with some of the programs we have, that's the whole reason we have them is it's not as much um, and actually has really nothing to do with the, the money. It's all about getting the education out there and being able to um, continue mm-hmm. to keep our programs going, but get the information out to the people who need it in all the different areas. Because one of the things I've run into um, on the social media side and um, just kind of across the, the country and internationally is, you know, um, how do I find somebody who knows this? And it's a challenge. It is. It's really hard to find medical providers who um, do this well. And there's definitely some great people across the country. But trying to find a way to connect and not have to um, geographically be in the same area, um, that's part of what we've tried to do with our the Hypermobility Solution Program or even the Hypermobility 101 is how can we get some of the information out there where people can go through it on their own time and not be tied um, to geography or time and space and progress at their own rate. And so that's been part of our model. Yeah, and it's it's incredibly impressive. And I, I also am a firm believer that, you know, bringing together people who are, um, you know, well-versed in one area and having them share ideas and, and having places that patients can go to find a community. You know, I also, I know that part of your program is um, running sort of a, um, a, like a Facebook group, I think, like a support group for people to be able to communicate with each other and just finding those places of support, encouragement, and information um, are really important. And that's kind of, that's the really nice part of the internet that allows us to, um, you know, reach out over these, um, barriers because, you know, unfortunately, um, even though I, I, I've met so many people with these conditions, um, they, they really tend to be spread out. And then you have the problem, like we discussed about just medical providers not being well-versed in them. And so, um, if we can kind of find each other and piece together with the answers that we can, um, every little bit helps. That's in a way one of the um, things about when when our condition is in a really dire, um, bad place. 
you know, a little bit 10% improvement here and 10% improvement there can really um, help snowball and, and, and lead you into a better direction. But it's almost like in some instances, it's like, you can't get there from here program. Like you really need that um, support and, and to have the opposite of that uncertainty, you know, that when your brain's just spinning and what's wrong with me, why am I so different? Having, you know, the ability to have, you know, good quality sources of information and then communities to talk about things and realize like, no, we're, you know, we're, this is normal for us, what's happening, mm-hmm. even if it's confusing for others. So, yeah, awesome. Well, and even having some ideas of what you can try. Mm-hmm. You know, it might mm-hmm. not work for everyone, but here's some ideas of places to start. Um, I find that's been really helpful for people. Absolutely. And that was a major impetus for starting this podcast. I was just so frustrated of hearing all the things that I couldn't do <laughs> and uh-huh. being to- being told, uh, you know, I had a yoga practice um, going for a while until I was diagnosed and the doctor diagnosed me and said, oh, stop doing yoga immediately. It's the worst thing for you. And I did and I deconditioned. And then um, then I since I think I saw a study that indicated that it, um, you know, wasn't you know, necessarily negative, And in fact, you know, had positives. And so I thought, well, why did I just give up on this if it was working for me? And, and why didn't I try to find, um, you know, someone who was knowledgeable and could help me do it safely. Um, but the weight of that, you know, especially where I was when I was first diagnosed, it's just, oh, doctor says, don't do it. I won't do it. Okay. You know, it's like, but, you know, knowing that, well, people have very different levels of knowledge. And so as a patient, being able to ask good questions to, to understand your provider's level of knowledge, although that can be difficult because sometimes that can be an ego challenge too. So um, we really are walking a tightrope in a lot of ways, but I think um, the services that you provide and and your input um, is just such a great source of support and, and information for the community, things that we really need. So uh, again, thank you. Great. Um, what, do, what do you think of the current state of research into hypermobility conditions? This is kind of a hot topic. Um, what do you think are the key areas or questions that you would like to see investigated in the future? You know, I, I think like with a lot of things, like there's a long way to go with um, research and there's a lot of a lot of areas I would love to see more research in. Um, but probably the um, the biggest ones is um, looking at more comprehensive programs and which doesn't always go well with research because they, they tend to be harder research studies to do. But hypermobility tends to span so many um, aspects, areas, systems that um, doing like individual models of like singular treatments, you know, I never see the best results. I always see the best results when you can um, impact multiple systems. And so, you know, that's probably my pie in the sky um, research ideas. And, you know, um, hopefully at some point I'll be able to kind of get involved and facilitate that. Um, But on a smaller scale, um, looking at some of the um, nerve sensitivity pieces would be great. The um, small nerve pain patterns and the hypersensitivity pieces and how those relate to movement patterns and proprioception and pain. Um, I, th- I would love to see more on that. Um, there's more pieces coming in about um, diet and other ways, whether it's histamine or, or um, mast cell or, or other pieces that I think um, in the future, we'll find out way into those. 
but I would love to see some research looking and, and starting down that, that path at some point. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think it's good to have a little bit of pie in the sky ideas um, and then to sort of have the practical um, it's something I struggle with. It's like, do we push for incremental change or, um, you know, how do we kind of change the narrative? But, um, those are, you know, topics I think are, are really important and, um, hopefully will be, um, the subject of more study. I think that those, um, small nerves and how they operate and what makes them, you know, happy and function well, and what makes them go awry is a really critical question. And of course, like you said, the role of, histamine and mast cell intolerances and alpha tryptosemia and some of these other comorbidities to begin to kind of tease out like what factors are correlated with better outcomes and you know what factors are correlated with with other with, with not as good of outcomes um so yeah here fingers crossed here's hoping for a brighter more research-filled future um, that's right and speaking of which, um, you are also uh, a mother of children living with hypermobility conditions. Um, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing children with these conditions? And do you have any tips for parents out there who may be struggling with figuring out how to get proper care and treatment for their children and to support them in the healthiest way possible? Well, um, kids are, are really great to work with in terms of, of hypermobility, especially at school age. Um, I get asked all the time, like, what's the right age to start working with, with kids? And um, my answer is usually, I like starting to work with the parents when they're, you know, preschool age, but I like to work with the kids when they're school age, because that's when they can start kind of having an understanding that they need to to do things a little bit differently. And kids don't tend to have all of the layers of stuff that adults do after you've gone through, you know, 12 years of trying to find a diagnosis. And so they tend to be a lot more straightforward. And so with um, parents, one of the, the big things that I've had to learn and then with educating, um, you know, other parents with kids that I've worked with is that you really wanna see it as an opportunity to educate and empower. And so from that angle, it's highlighting um, what they need to do and take care of, not being a laundry list of things not to, to do. You know, the don't do that. Don't, you know, don't sit that way. It's really more about teaching kids like, you know, this is your body and you're going to have to take care of it. And not everyone is the same. It's kind of the same things you do education wise um, in lots of other facets of growing up. And so learning that, you know, for your body, you can't W set, you need to have feet forward. And when you're walking, you got to make sure that your toes are forward. There's easy cueing things you can do as a parent where you're not nagging and you're just focusing on toes forward or, and these are cues like I've used with, with my kids, um, with all of their, their things is, you know, when they're sitting weird, you know, remember you got to sit forward or. And I even just shorten up my cues. Yeah, you know, they understand what it is, and I just say feet forward, and they they know. Um, and with walking and posture, you know, being able to support positioning, um, and we have a um, 
we've encouraged our kids to be active at home. We do a lot of walking and hiking as a family. And so having that focus on, you know, this is being healthy. This isn't, you know, you're special, you're different. Kids don't want to be different. They want to be like everyone else. And so knowing that it's more about learning how to live in your own body, you know, they can take it and run with it and do amazingly well. You know, with teens, it's a lot more about um, giving them choices. And I see a lot of parents who will really come down on their teens for like the whole phone neck thing. Um, You know, well, if they would just get off their phone, if they would get off their tablet. And there are pieces of that where, yeah, we would all do better if we spent less time, you know, looking down at our phones. Um, But with teens, it's more giving them those choices of like, you know, I'm sure your neck does hurt. Maybe the two hours you spent looking at your phone, um, you know, that probably aggravated you. And maybe next time you should think about holding your phone up in a better position or not being on it for as long or, um, but letting them start to see those natural consequences. And um, the more people feel like they have choices, the more kids understand that they have a say in how they feel they will tend to naturally choose better. They don't tend to have all of the layers of um, um, I should, or that's what everyone else is doing. They tend to kind of um, evolve a lot faster with it. And I think for parents, understanding that your child can have a good life. Um, It is not, um, you know, nothing but limits, but they may have to learn how to live differently in a world that doesn't Um, always support them. The more you can teach your child how to advocate for themselves and to understand what they need, the better they're going to be able to communicate it and have a work set up that works well for them, that have the support that they need, whether it's in school, at work, or with um, uh, choosing the right shoes or um, vehicle set up as they move forward in life. Absolutely. That's a really great perspective. And it makes me think of, um, you know, how unfortunate it is that in a lot of areas, um, I've seen struggles with trying to get accommodation for certain things at school. And, and it's a similar issue with people trying to get accommodation for issues in a workplace. It's really difficult to be in the position of asking to be treated differently. Like you said, I think most of us just kind of want to fit in and, you know, we want to, I mean, obviously we want our medical issues addressed and we want our, um, you know, symptoms acknowledged when they affect us, but, um, you know, we want to be our, live our lives and, and be the people that we are too. And it's, it's unfortunate the way the system is set up that people are in the position to have to ask for certain accommodations Um, And hopefully as awareness increases, you know, there'll be more institutional changes. So, you know, kids and adults alike won't find themselves kind of swimming upstream on that account. But I think in the meantime, it's great advice to empower um, kids to be able to understand and take ownership for how they feel to the extent that they're able to and, you know, in an age appropriate um, and time appropriate way. Um, and then to be able to advocate for themselves, um, until we get to that hopefully brighter future where they won't have to do as much, (laughs) um, of that. And I think a lot of the accommodations that, um, people with hypermobility conditions need are 
great accommodations for the general public. You know, there's all this um, research that's come out about sitting and how that can be really hard on the body. And yet we kind of look at the typical model for a lot of workplaces and a lot of schools and, you know, having there, there be a lot of periods of being sedentary. And um, for some people that's, you know, more difficult than for others. And so, um, and those hard chairs, oh, when I go, go out somewhere and all we have is hard chairs, it's like, oh, it's just, it's heartbreaking, but it's hard to, you know, carry around a cushion with you everywhere you go to. Cause it's like, you know, you don't want to, I don't know, yeah, be attracted the world, to yeah. the world is not set up to be accommodating. No, for sure. <laughs> definitely. Um, do you have any other tips to share with others out there who might be struggling to manage pain or fatigue associated with a hypermobility condition? Um, I think probably my biggest tips are, you know, keep looking for good information, keep looking for good providers, because even though it takes effort, you know, when you find that um, good provider who understands, like it makes it so much easier for you. And so it is kind of worth that, that struggle. And the other piece I'd say is, um, you know, start looking at whatever resources you can can find and work on educating yourself. I know like at our site, we have a lot of free videos. We have a lot of free content. And so you can kind of go and, and gather, gather information and start to um, find ways that you can work on and improve um, where you're at now. Um, and in addition for the fatigue stuff, the rule or the trick that I have that I um, I use a lot in my clinic that I would love to share is what I call my rule of two. And so that means if your pain or fatigue goes up by more than two, that is where you need to stop, change, or quit what you're doing. So for example, if you're, we're going to just go with pain, but you could also substitute fatigue. Um, if your pain level is at a three, and you're walking, working, cleaning, take your pick. Um, when your pain level hits a five, that means you have to change what you're doing. You need to take a break. You need to sit down. You need to lay down. You need to, you need to do something to control that level and bring that back down. Um, it doesn't mean if you're okay with a five and um, you really have to get something done, you can keep going. It means that is your warning sign that you need to, to make, a, make a change. Now, if your pain level is a one and you're having a really good day, that means you have to stop at a three. Well, for a lot of people, like, you know, well, three doesn't seem like very much and it's not, but it's that change of two that makes a difference. So you can kind of use that as a guideline. It doesn't mean you can't go through it, but it means you can use that as a, a, a guideline to know when you are crossing that invisible barrier and when you increase it by too much, it, that's when we start seeing those longer recovery times, larger symptoms show up later. So it's kind of a handy. Yeah, that's some great advice. And I think one of the big issues for a lot of hypermobile patients is sort of this boom bust cycle that we get into. Mm -hmm. Like we'll have a period of inactivity and then we have a day where we feel a little better. And, you know, in the meantime, the paperwork has piled up, the chores, the whatever household tasks, the work projects, whatever it may be, um, you know, hasn't waited for our symptoms. So there can be this desire to 
push, 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 you know, make hay while the sun shines or whatever expression. And then we can, you know, have a setback and then, you know, be laying down again and decondition. And so that seesawing that a lot of people experience is really difficult. And I think that's, that's a really interesting lens. I'm going to try integrating that into my life because it, that also, you know, is a way of kind of at least being mindful of, you know, the possibility for delayed onset muscle soreness, you know, you might go from Mm -hmm. a a five, but your pain might, you know, you might sit down and rest at the five, but the pain might keep going to seven, eight, because, you know, it's catching up with you. And so just having like a a metric like that to check in, I mean, it it can be tough. And I go in phases where I think, oh, I don't want to keep rating my pain because I'm not paying attention to it. And I'm you know (laughs) putting it more on the floor than it already has. But I, that's this tension. I think it's it's different when, you know, someone is, you know, you're in the doctor's office and, hey, rate your pain. It's like, well, do you mean my neck pain? Do you mean my hip pain? You know, and, and you sort of, you're, you're like, well, wh- what are you asking about and why? Whereas thinking about that pain rubric as a tool for your own life is a, a different perspective. So, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's very, very interesting advice. Well, that's all for that's all my questions. Um, thank you so much to Kate Skinner today for joining us on the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast. Um, as always, please feel free to reach out by email at hypermobilityhappyhour um, at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the podcast. Bye.